but you did the hitman from hazard and i absolutely loved it and i was just like i really want to get this chance to talk to this woman at some point in my life i don't know when but i really want to talk to her we're gonna do it we're gonna do it it's happening right right now real time right right now (laughs) also after we got your after we got your email and found out that you're into the uh into the whiskey business and uh (laughs) and uh i told kirsten the title of your first novel she was like She's my favorite person. She's oh, yeah, my favorite person. Absolutely what happened was like, <laughs> we need to be best friends now. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> well, it's happening. So that's wonderful. Um, that's I'm I'm tickled pink to be here. I can't tell you. Like, I was in a chat with a couple a gaggle of folks who are getting published by Shotgun Honey. They're like, Oh, you know, someone y'all are looking for somebody. And I was like, Well, I mean, I love talking to people, so I'll get in there and you know, mess some things around, fuck some shit up, and then and here we are, real yeah. time. That is absolutely perfect. It was a weird moment for us too when we had a publisher reach out to us and be like, hey, do you want to enter? And we were like, we're not begging. What? (laughs) You want your people to talk to us? Excuse me? How the hell did we become professionals at this? Like, this is not not, okay. We're not. We're not. Even a little bit. But it's fine. It's totally fine. But no, we're we're really. Go on. Oh, I was just saying, I, I'm just, uh, I've, I've listened to a couple of your old episodes last night. And y'all definitely are professionals. And it's it's just a, it's, I mean, you are, you're creating an ambiance and you're giving a platform for folks to talk about things and you're highlighting up and coming authors. And you like that dark nitty gritty, which is wonderful because that's what's carved on the inside of my heart anyway. So let's boogie woogie with it. And <laughs> also like, thank you so much for that kind compliment about the story. That was very nice. Um, uh, so don't discredit y'all. Y'all are in the room. Take up some damn space, you know, branch out. <laughs> Let me just drink a few more sips of that. And then maybe, yeah. we'll, maybe we'll do yeah. that. But, I'm an uh, infinite hype person. I'll hype you up anytime. Love it. I feel like you have to be to, to sell whiskey <laughs> to an extent. You got to be like, yeah, you're here for a good time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so shall we get started? Then? Yeah, let's get started. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dark Waters, a literary podcast focused on dark fiction and those who love to read and write it. I'm Nate, here as always with Kirsten. Hey. And we are so happy to introduce our guest today, Ashley Irwin. Hi, friends. Thank you for having me. So for Ashley's bio, um, Ashley Irwin writes Southern Pulp. Sometimes she does it well by her own admission. Um, mostly she peddles bourbon until the day that she until the day comes that she doesn't. Living in su- sunny Los Angeles with the man and her cat, who started out with a name but ended up motherfucking boo boo. Um, all the things undecided. She has a forthcoming novel about a bunch of bad ones from Kentucky coming from Shotgun Honey in November 2022. And you got to be on the lookout for it. I'm in the middle of reading Black Betty, uh, her novel Black Betty. Uh, Try to say what, what is it? It's, 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 uh, it's Black Betty or the retelling of a, uh, of a story about a man killer and her machete. So good. So wonderful. oh real oh that's very uh, nice. Thank you. I'm just obsessed with your titles. Like I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I just like, don't know what else to say. I'm just obsessed with your title. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I to say that I like to cram a lot of words into something is a is a is an understatement. Certainly, uh, there's like an alliterative like flow of uh of of how it goes. And I was just like, oh, it, you know, it's a ballad concerning Black Betty or the retelling of a man killer and a machete. That just like flows off the tongue like butter. Like you know, let's. Let's vibe with that. It is certainly it is certainly a vibe um, from from what I've read so far. It's like 
the way you the way you set up the story is absolutely fantastic and i really want to see where it goes by the end of it and i'm gonna have some questions about it because i i really want to pick your brain on this um but to start off we'd like to hear a bit more about um the story that um the book that you've got coming out in november 2020 which is grit black blood um and the rest of your work overall but first we want to get to know you a bit better as a writer and as a reader um so because this is what we do um kind of what you call the dark nitty gritty stuff um what do you normally classify under the header of quote-unquote dark fiction why do you love it what are you specific what are you specifically looking for when you're looking for a new book in that genre well i think that i'm uh i'm infinitely fascinated by the duality of individuals and holding uh you know as carl Jung would say the shadow within ourselves and and being very self-aware of the fact that it is it is only a uh a a subtle mere choice from going into either direction of immense catastrophe and destruction to trying to like walk with a little bit of intention, which I I suppose would be the, the clipping of, of good and righteousness, righteousness to a certain degree. So, I mean, I am drawn to the underbelly of society when people have no decision, situational ethics, of course, Um, coming from the South. I think that uh, violence is a little bit more, uh, prescient than perhaps in other areas. Um, I, I don't know if that's a true statement, but I, I think my experience has spoken thus far to it, um, or, or rural communities rather. And so I think that that kind of not having any choice whatsoever and at, at times and being left um, in uh, a state of impotence leads to rage. And uh, rage is is kind of uh, cyclical in and that it always exists. And so you have this, this, this repetition of um, outpouring. So things of that nature draw me to fiction. I definitely care for individuals who are Byronic, I suppose you could say. So anything like that um, would be a beacon in the night. Or um, I think that yeah, I mean, I just write really gritty shit. I mean, I just write really violent stuff. Like I try to, I was, I, I got to tell you, I was in this salon. I was doing a reading at a salon at this fancy place in Beverly Hills with all these fancy ass people in there. And it was like really right proper ladies, you know? And I was sitting next to this little white haired woman and she was in her sixties and she was drinking her white wine spritzer. And I just looked at her and I was like, honey, you better buckle up. I am so sorry. I'm such a nice person, but the things that are about to come out of my mouth are just going to be vitriolic. I have to tell you. And so, <laughs> and so um, I don't know. That's that's what I'm drawn to. And I want to read anything that describes that. I mean, listening to y'all's introduction, Clive Barker. I love Clive Barker, Chuck Palahniuk, of course. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I had the uh, Flannery O'Connor. Certainly I had the pleasure of going and seeing a viewing and uh, Chuck was there here in L.A. And he was talking about his purposes and whatnot. And what a fascinating individual that is. And Clive Barker just like. I mean, when I read his short stories, like Midnight to Meat Train, oh my gosh, that, that kept me up for like days. It's, he's so visceral with his imagery and the way that he plays with, um, in, in, a, in a manner of uh, uh, sexual uh, virtuosity that is unprecedented in other uh, parts of literature. I, I, I definitely am a pursuer of extremes, we'll put it that way, in literature and in my, my own wanting to read. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I love that description of Barker because he's so he's one of those authors where like it's so crude, but it's done so well. Like he's still on literary fiction shelves. 
and he's just writing full-on sex scenes you're like well done well done you like yes hmm. but uh well yeah it's so interesting how i i feel like like in general you could make a statement of i mean not to go too far off track but I, that we're gonna meander aren't we like let's oh, go absolutely. down the road absolutely. right absolutely <laughs> so <laughs> Like, I think that you could probably make a statement that as like contemporary American pop culture, we're so afraid of sex in general. Like, ain't nobody fucking in movies or in books anymore. Not like they are in France. Like, if you want to watch something visceral. And so, like, when I read Clive Barker, I'm like, get it in to fit it in, brother. Like, that's how people do anything. <laughs> ain't nothing weird. It's so right. Yeah. I'm, like, I, I think what really is, so I first started with Mr. Be Gone from him. Mm-hmm. And then I think my next one from him was The Inhuman Condition, which is the fourth volume of Books of Blood. And okay. The Inhuman Condition is so good, but it's literally just fucking people into oblivion. It's The, the Inhuman Condition? I thought that was a collection of short stories, because I remember you gave me that one. It is. It is a collection of short stories, but the last one is called The Inhuman Condition. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. No, no, no. no. Yeah. I, rem- I remember it now, and that one scared the living shit out of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I was I was probably clutching my rosary beads a little bit tighter. Um, but someone <laughs> well, someone think of the children. Yes, we did. They shouldn't resist. <laughs> um, but uh, to your point about society, whatever. Um, yeah, there's actually it's so interesting when you look at American movies and media, and especially the um, the MPAA rate, whatever the mm-hmm. organization mm-hmm. is that rates movies, and PG thirteen movies can have so much gratuitous violence, like infinite amount of gratuitous violence empty bullets i don't care like just whatever america all over the place but the second that you have a sex scene it's r like it's in like you see anything other than cut to black mm-hmm. it's automatically a higher rating and you could have one fuck in every pg-13 movie right it's 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 so it's so interesting it, it it's just a, a very you know i that's a five-hour conversation that we really don't need to get on that rabbit hole so i'll just say like kudos to the french like i swear what they're making right now korean cinema as well oh yeah um uh uh, north atlantic uh uh, or iceland um you know even every time i've done a couple of noir at the bars in england um in newcastle and like made a gaggle of friends over there in edinburgh and whatnot and um Yeah, they're they're fantastic, and uh, I'll go anywhere to make a friend. And uh, so, so, but listening to them read and talk, and uh, I think it's a disservice to us. We all need just need to like let it flow a little bit. Anyways, let's go on. Where are we going? Sorry. Next? Yes. Next question. Uh, you know, it's re- I released a uh, I put on Twitter like a Dark Waters Bingo, aka drinking game, and it was uh-huh. every fifth tangent we get to take a drink. So anyway, what's the last book you read that left you heartbroken in pieces, or had you keep the lights on in the house for an indefinite period of time? So uh, to be fair, I've been reading a bunch of nonfiction. So I've been reading what I like to call a segment of like He-Man, He-Man take over the world shit, um, okay. which is like military tactic books. But the last novel would be um, Cabin in the Woods uh by it's here um paul tremblay okay this was this this was really great this was on recommendation people were kind of talking about it in the horror world and i found it it's it's a post-apocalyptic um interesting take like ritualistic um i've been kind of immersed uh entirely in uh 
Girard philosophy and mimetic crisis, which we won't go down that that can be another one, but all about these like foundational murders and like the cyclical essence of violence. And I thought that, that Paul did a really magnificent job in that book. So that was the last one where I read and I had to put it down. I was like, Oh, that was such an interesting decision. Good for you. Good for you. I feel like Nathan is just like brimming with thoughts on this. Yeah. Well, no, it was fantastic. No, she, um, you, you dropped the name of actually someone I've been meaning to read for quite some time, uh, Rene Girard. Um, and like, I've I've heard about, um, his style of thinking and I'm just, I'm fascinated by what I've heard about it. But then it's also that I've heard so much about Paul Tremblay that I'm also incredibly intrigued and, Mm -hmm. uh, John Langan is another one that I think kind of gets mentioned in the same name as uh, Paul Tremblay. And he kind of okay. fits into that very somewhat ritualistic from what I've read of him. Like the, the novel of his that I've read is called The Fisherman. It's about maybe like 215 pages, but gave me a lot of really deep, terrifying thoughts um, that are it's just he's such a great horror writer that dwells on the dwells on the relationships between people and what mm-hmm. those relationships can drive other people mm-hmm. to do. And mm-hmm. it's just, he's so, he's so, so wonderful. Um, but like when you mentioned Paul Tremblay, I was just kind of like, Oh yeah. Like I, I've heard that name before and I've heard him like mentioned consistently as one of the most terrifying authors to read in this day and age. He made, he made a lot of decisions in there and this is coming. I mean, I don't know how far you are in black Betty, but I mean, the darker, the better, like, um, he made a lot of decisions in that book that I thought were, were great. Um, and also uh, Thomas uh, Ligotti. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, Songs of called? dead, Songs of a dead dreamer in Grimscribe. It's like a literary, like a collection of short stories. I, I read a couple of there that were, Oh, that's harrowing. Am I, completely missing the is it this i'm not sure if it's the same book does that have a forward by jeff vandermeer well let's open it up sister let's take a gander <laughs> um it come. sure does ah i was right okay <laughs> <laughs> that's been on my to read list for a while because i'm obsessed with jeff vandermeer okay. but like it's good so you like it so far i think it's great i mean it's one of those that i pick up and i put down um mm-hmm. uh, not not for any reason not because it's not salaciously delicious but more so just you know other things it's life yeah yeah um but i i think that it's great yeah, yeah. the art the art particularly um i'm a visual learner uh, images are very vibrant of course it's always that's probably a silly thing to say but i i, I found that that cover haunts me oh, i love great. a good co- i'm a sucker right? for a good cover yeah there was a there's been a couple of books where i've just like hated the contents but they only drew me in because that cover was just like, uh, yeah. but yeah. Uh, okay. What's the last book you read that left you with a positive impression of the world? Um, well, I, I don't know that I can speak to the last one, but I'll speak to the one that sits with me uh, in that it had such a beautiful um, Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely uh, Hunter. So Carson, uh, do y'all know about Carson McCullers? I do not. Oh, I do not. Oh, oh, well, so you're going to love her um, if you like Flannery. So Carson McCullers is a writer who died too young uh, out of Georgia. And she wrote um, a lot of really magnificent, uh, well, actually her oeuvre is not as extensive because she died very young. Um, but she got up uh, in that kind of literary 
uh, tribe in the early 20s um, down there in the south. And The Heart of uh, a Lonely Hunter takes place in a small town and it opens with this um, this couple, for lack of a better word, um, who are taking care of each other and they're very much ostracized. Um, and it's not necessarily like a happy heartstring tale, but it's more so her writing is Mount Everest, it's elevation. It's mm. your, your, when you're, when you're reading it, it stands still. Time doesn't exist. Um, truly a lost treasure. I think that she probably uh, is in the vein of some other young writers that uh, went, went away, but she was, she was a talent beyond words. And she also has um, something, the lone wedding, it'll come to me, but she's great. She fantastic. It, it was more her. Yeah. It was more her exploration in an opposing view of like, as opposed to going down the, the brevity of humanity through violence, it's the brevity of humanity through introspection and bearing witness. Hmm. You know, now that you mentioned, like, now that you mentioned a little bit about, a little bit about her, I think there was actually a biography that came out about her a few, maybe a couple of years ago. And I remember seeing actually an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, mm-hmm. uh, reviewing the, reviewing the biography. So like, I, I think I may know a little bit more about her. Um, but yeah, she sounds fascinating. Like there's, there's so many like Southern authors that go so much deeper than what people mm-hmm. may expect and take like unexpected kind of points of view or like go in a different direction than people might expect. And I'm always fascinated by them. So I'll definitely have to check her out. Please I, do. She's great. Yeah. I mean, um, that title alone, the heart is a lonely hunter. Get out of town. That, yeah, that, right. that, that already seems like tug at like the heartstrings and just say like, right. you, you need to read me. Like, yeah. You can't deny me this. <laughs> um, so next question we've got is what made you decide to write and publish? Great question. <laughs> uh, okay. So I don't think that you can answer that question without looking at a little bit of my background. So my people come from Florida and Eastern Kentucky. So from the Eastern Kentucky segment of it, Uh, I come from an uh, oral tradition of telling stories, hence why I'm always trying to tell a story like that. So when I tell a story, I tell it in the same like uh, verbiage and cadence that my father and my uncles would tell a story in. And it doesn't cost anything to tell stories. So you'd go and you'd get in a a, a truck and go drive down gravel roads. And my dad would tell me stories about our people. And it just kind of spiraled out from that. And then um, I believe that I possess a, an ability to be an extremely, uh, proficient extrovert, but an internal, but am introverted extrovert. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I I love to entertain people. It's, it's been beneficial. And if, if I got a gaggle of folks that want to listen to this one talk, then I suppose I might as well entertain them. We got to earn our drinks. You know what I mean? And also like the best story gets the biggest pull off the moonshine jug. So let's get real, you know, (laughs) That's probably, that's, that's why. So I always a storyteller. When I started writing and publishing shotgun, honey was the first person to actually publish. I think the second person to publish one of my short stories way back then, like eight years ago. Um, and, and very fitting that then Ron reached out, uh, to, to publish this one that's uh, being debuted this year. So full circle on that. And, uh, I suppose when I got in front of a crowd and started doing these noir at the bars, people 
were receptive and I lent into that. That's the best though, right? When you like, when your audience gets it. Yeah, I kind of say, I kind of like, I I demand a lot from my readers. I know that I write phonetically. Um, Sometimes I I completely drop you into unfamiliar territory and I demand that you pay attention. Uh, Whether or not that is serviceable to the individual, I can't say, but I always equate to my, my, it's punk rock. You got to be in the room. You just got to be in the room. I don't know how else to describe it. Like it's a feeling, it's kinetic energy. You don't really know what's going on. Sometimes I'm talking really fast and saying all these things. And all you know is that you leave it. Hopefully you leave and you're like, it's a good time. We'll do that again. I, like she's I can, a rock star. Oh my God. No, you definitely are. Um, and I think also is, the, is like the way, even if you're like dropping someone into unfamiliar territory, you do it in such a way that is always of service to the reader. Like I've, I've seen, I've seen several books or like I've read several books where the whole point of it is to use language that throws people off kilter. And it's sometimes useless. Like they do it just because they can do it. And you're not one of the people that do that. Like you, you, like when you, what you're doing is in so incredibly deliberate and it makes such an impression in such a good way that it's absolutely wonderful. Like, even if you're writing about absolutely horrific stuff, I just have a joy of reading it because of how you do it. So it's absolutely wonderful. That is a very nice thing to say. Thank you very much. That's very nice. I try. Um, So a, a little bit then, uh, talk to us kind of about a day in the life. Like, how do you divide your time between projects? How do you stay motivated if something gets stuck? Um, so I, I'm pretty structured. I try to be very tr- structured. I try to be almost like um, monastic when it comes to that. Like wake up, do morning pages. Don't get faltered by anything. Allow the, allow the process to happen. Kind of dump stuff on a, uh, a piece of paper. Always having paper around. I am not a plot writer. I am a character writer. So how things come to me is if I allow myself to be conduit to it, lines will just happen and I'll just write them down. And then all of a sudden that line forms itself into a character. I see characters before I see anything else. Um, And then if I'm able to put that down somewhere, I'll allow the characters to take me where they want me to go. Um, and then the process of, of building and kind of looking at it and saying, well, what is this shitstorm?" And, and, and putting things in place. And, you know, for Grip Black Blood specifically, I was very much determined to write about a specific area, which is Eastern Kentucky, to write about the type of men that come out of Eastern Kentucky. So my entire first novel was about women. Um, and I wanted to write something about men. And I wanted to write things that are based on true events because of uh, familial ties to them. And so I did quite a lot of research. Coincidentally, it co-aligns with what I do for a living within the bourbon industry. So having a really good understanding of the founding of Kentucky and how it operates and how the, um, how agriculturally things would influence other things, because of course, liquor tells stories of the people once you get down to it. and, and my favorite example, not to go on a tangent, but like we're people are drinking to this, right? So we'll yeah. let them. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is three. Um, so, 
So count them, folks. Count it. Count it. (laughs) My favorite story of how this pertains to uh, anthropological uh, aspects of telling the narrative of people and where the liquor comes from. Okay, so mezcal. Mezcal comes um, from all aspects of Mexico. Mexico. It deals with a particular wild agave, and there's all different varieties of agaves and. Um, these mezcaleros are essentially the individuals who make mezcal down there. And there, it's, of course, as with any spirit industry, there is a superstition that's built around it and very tech, like traditional techniques in which uh, folks will adhere to. And um, it's very uh, uh, ritualistic. And so uh, a lot of mezcaleros will take this long wood pipe and they will uh, drop um uh, a little bit of the spirit into a glass and they're looking for what they call Las Perlas. So Las Perlas are the legs that happen that uh, carry out how much proof is in the thing. Um, and they're able to distinguish almost to an exact percentage what the proof of that spirit is based on the pearls or the legs that drip down that glass. The only thing that's important about this story, not the only thing, all of that was important because it's delicious and wonderful and um, a rich history and mag- I could go on forever. Um, but is that this particular uh, wood vessel that they're using to drip that down is bamboo. And bamboo is not indigenous to, Me- to Mexico. And it was believed that Spanish, the Spaniards were the ones who introduced uh, distillation to Mexico. Well, bamboo predates that. So that means that there was a Chinese influence there. And so that's what I mean about it. When you can look at all of these confluences and whatnot and how these uh, individuals interact with each other, then it, it parlays and in, into a more richer context of where the spirit comes from. And so having this rudimentary understanding of Kentucky in general only makes me more efficient at my job. And plus my whole family uh, on my dad's side comes from there too. So it's great. I think I went down a really big rabbit hole and please forgive no, me. I love that. Especially because like we haven't had a lot of people on like that we've talked to really talk about being like more of the character and being like, I let my characters talk to me. And that's how I write. So I'm really glad I'm not alone. Like that's really nice. <laughs> So yeah, no, it totally, you have to like, kind of let them take you to where it's going to go mm-hmm. for that, for that style. Right. Mm-hmm. And also I will happily listen to any lecture about how agave is made, preferably yeah. with a tasting, but like I've got my yes. bourbon, so it's fine. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so when you're working with editors or an editor, um, what sort of style do you prefer when someone is examining your work? What types of feedback really work for you and what just absolutely doesn't? I don't know that I, I don't know that I necessarily have a style of feedback that I want things that are, if, if someone's giving me feedback or something and they're saying that I don't understand this, then that means that I haven't done a job because I'm not going to be able to be in the room to explain it. So whatever is serviceable to the work, I have Hopefully, I feel as if right now in the moment I have stripped away ego from the work to take criticism very well and to be able to step back from it and not get protective. I mean, of course, there are hills that you'll die on and you're like, I disagree with you politely, but and I think that this should happen because it's more pertinent to the character and how the character would operate in the world. And I think to do otherwise would compromise who that person is or it strips them of their agency or authenticity. Um, but <clears throat> all feedback is, is welcome. Um, criticism, the lot, 
you know, I'm just trying to be better in the craft. Yeah. Well, I guess it's more, do you, when you're looking at that in terms of what's serviceable to the work, is there types of, I guess, is there types of ways that people approach you? Either it's that they like read out everything or they just come to you with like a list of questions or they're like, I'm going to intricately examine every single grammar thought flaw or like, I don't know, like if there's like a style that you've necessarily like really responded to. I mean, I think red is jarring. I would say probably not red. I'd prefer black. Like if you don't black out the whole thing, just do black. Red has a primordial primordial rooting in, in primary education. And I was a rather uh, <laughs> aggressive child. So um, I would say that I don't know that I necessarily would like to place my relationship with an editor as that of teacher, but more so cohort within the experience. So I like would, I would, yes, I would admonish red probably, Fair. but, and, and also, you know, because I write phonetically, I kind of, I, I at times have to give a template of like, these words are always going to be these words. And I know that they're going to drive you crazy, but I never going to put a while on everybody. You know what I mean? Like there's never going to be a while on like half of my words, because I want you to say everybody and I want yeah. you to read it like everybody. And, um, so that tends to be, um, a guideline. And other than that, yeah, I'd say red. Fair. Red is just horrible. I don't know. I, maybe I'm wrong. I, what have other people said? I don't think anyone likes red. I don't, right? I don't know a single person who's like, yes, please judge it like a college essay. I, I have right. a very visceral reaction when right? someone's like, and I don't mean like in Google Docs, right? And you like highlight things or like the comments or whatever, like that's different. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone took the time to change their font to red yeah. and say, you've ignored the rules of English l- grammar. And I'm like, mm, right. Mm. I mean, I, I don't, don't know. know what any, yeah. anyway, so like, we yeah. can just stop that. <laughs> it's a hundred percent happened to me before. And I'm like, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, so I occasionally, I occasionally have to write for my, for my day job. And um, every single thing that I, every single thing that I write goes through like a couple of layers of review and they always have track changes on uh-huh. It comes back just covered in red. No matter what I write, it always comes back covered in red. And I've started calling it, it's a blood sacrifice to the god of Microsoft. Yeah, yeah um, I like that. Because it's just... Better way like, of looking at it. I mean, you're, you're, you're offering something to somebody and it's never right. pleasant. Like it always, it always kind of sucks. But it's, I, I don't know anyone that actually enjoys seeing like anything come back with like just come back with like blood all over the page like it's, it's al- yeah yeah it's it's always it's always just it's always just painful um yeah. so I feel like anyone who does what we do is a little bit masochistic though no because again like i like this is reminding me of like the worst edit i ever had actually like i like the first first legit novel i ever wrote which will never be published because it's, it's absolute garbage now i look at it again it's complete propaganda um a friend of mine actually went through the whole thing. She like, God bless her. She went through the entire thing, took 15 hours, 548 comments and oh like track changes all over the place. And I was just kind of like, you, you destroyed it. She was like, no, it's great. It's absolutely fantastic. I love it. But here's what you need to change. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh God, it took me a month. To, took me two months to fix all the, all the edits she had. And I was just like, I thank you for that. But that hurt. Like that was yeah. legitimately painful. <laughs> you gotta do that in sections, right? Be like, right. I read the book. I'm gonna give you part one. 
mm-hmm. and then I'll give you part two. And I'll mm-hmm. give you part three. That happened to me with a book too, where someone was like, listen, I'm going to do this in sections. You need to fix all of this and then I'll move on to the next part. I was like, you're not wrong. Like all, every single thing you said was entirely valid. Thank you for breaking this up for my poor tender black hole heart. <laughs> right. Well, anyway. I, guess it, I, guess, I guess it goes into also like, who are you lending authority to, to allow to, you know, walk in fire with you in this? Yeah. And so, because it's like, you know, it's not just, where there is something so clearly people talk about this rather often, but there's something so intimate about giving a piece of your work to someone else. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Typically if it's never had eyes on it before and you want to give it to individuals that are going to simultaneously tell you the truth and rip your heart out and mold you to make you better, but also do it with what I like to call a velvet hand glove. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have to, like I got to, I, I remember one, one of these other novels that, uh, that I wrote back when, which who knows if we'll ever sell it, but um, <clears throat> uh, I think I got, someone read it and they said that their only criticism was a personal attack on the writer of which we had never met. And I found that to be such an interesting decision um, and how very, I don't know what the right word is. Maybe I'll get to it in a second, but how very poorly done to, as opposed to, as opposed to an examination of the work person I had never met, it was thrown like a a third party. And then it was just an attack on the, on the, on the person who wrote it of which was unfounded and had nothing to do. I mean, I was like, that's an interesting decision. So, you know, it goes into like, who are you lending authority to? And basically my response was, forgive me. She's a cunt. And that was my response. (laughs) A valid response. (laughs) Valid response. Because this is the thing. You can read, like, I've definitely read work that is not anything I would have picked up on my own, is not a Mm -hmm. genre I like, is not work that I would personally appreciate, and be able to look at it and say, for the genre, for what you're going for, this is what it is. Right. Right? Like, that's not a, that's when like your own personal things, unless you're going for like, I'm going to publish this myself or my zine or my whatever. Mm-hmm. That's not your place to say, well, I hate it. Cause I don't like X, Y, and Z. Like, I don't like reading crime. Like, why are you editing a crime story then? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyways, anyway. <laughs> I mean, so like, it's, you- it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly valid thing. I'm glad we went down that tangent. Like it, it's yeah. really great. <laughs> yeah. So. so you've been published. You're on track for a very successful career. You've had multiple books published, multiple short story published. We so admire you. Um, when you're looking at the literary world and your influences as you continue to gain notoriety, who would you want your work to be compared to? I, I don't know that I could give that. I don't know that I, I could lend that. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I could lend that into the world. I can say who I admire, but I don't know that I could give myself that designation. Um, well, because, we can, it's fine. Well, <laughs> well that, see, and that's what it is. Yeah, you can, but I don't know that I can. Um, so then, uh, so then kind of the question would be, is like, who do you admire? Who's kind of like influenced you along the way yeah. towards how you write nowadays? Right. Yeah. Um, Larry Brown, Tom Franklin, uh, Carson McCullers, of course, uh, Frank Bill fucked me up real, real good when he came out with Donnie Brook. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah. 
Um, let's see here. Uh, Terry Crews. Not Terry Crews. Why am I saying Terry? Harry Crews. Harry Crews. Pardon me. Okay, I was going to say Harry the Crews. football player. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, isn't that the name from the guy of from uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just kind of like, did he write a book? Like, what the hell? <laughs> we, I didn't watch season six. I don't know. We could have. <laughs> I haven't watched Harry any Crews. of it. So. Harry um, Crews. Oh, Harry David, Crews. you'd love it. Anyway, Harry Crews. Harry Crews. Harry Crews. Um. I really, I mean, the person who got me into reading, honestly, was Anne Rice. So, uh, okay. her, yeah, her entire oeuvre. I, I think that she's such a master. Um, I don't know. I would never be compared to her, but uh, I think that that's. Um, I mean, of course, there there are writers that I admire immensely. Um, Eric Pruitt, Sean Cosby, um, that I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of reading with before. And they're just like lovely. I, I just, they're just like the best storytellers. Like if, if you, I mean, speaking of like hearing somebody read Eric Pruitt and, and, um, Sean is, they're phenomenal. They're so much fun. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm not thinking of everybody, but that's, that's the top of the list. That's fine. There's way too, there's always too many to list. Too That's many, totally yeah. Valid. So, speaking of uh, influencing your writing, uh, I believe you have a sample of... Oh, yeah. Let's get, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, let's, let's get into it. Yeah. I'm going to read... I'm just going to read the first chapter to you, right? Let's have some fun. Works yeah, for us. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this is the first chapter of Grit Black Blood. <clears throat> 1990, inner cowboy Nick. He'd shot five people that day. The lady with the bouffant, the husband to her, Red, the man who ran Red's, the fat man in front of him while waiting in line to kill Red and me. Believe that were all that gun had given him in the years he'd told it. 45 split through me like it's cutting hair. Sit me against the busted out cutlass next door with streams of red spurting out. Settled over me in cold spikes fitted with flesh eaters as rodeo hands, the disease making way over every inch. Mick Fairchild were his name, that rusty motherfucker. Stood with a phone in one hand and a Ruger Blackhawk in the other, his feet planted on the peeling patch to throw away roof that these shitholes always have. It had been two years since I'd seen him last, and morning, Mick, bubbled out a lot nicer than that fucker deserved. Morning, he clipped, that phone dropping from his shoulders. Oh, that's right, the phone. Well, we better rewind. Ring, ring. Zero in on a phone, a rotary phone, a shitty phone with a long cord that belongs in a place where gravel makes up the majority of the parking lot, where beat down doors and bugs constantly crawl out of cracks. And there's always one lady round somewheres with her hair teased to God in a blue bouffant and there ain't shit you can go to saying to her that's going to convince her you ain't what she's thinking you are. And the Franklin you slammed down for propriety's sake with the hint at, if there's a joiner, I'd have garner a listen. And by the grace of God, there hadn't been one. So for you know what's what, you're popping frosties and swapping yarns with a man packing heat and you done found out about his children's children he don't see no more because he ain't worth the company and it's shitty. 
the place you're at, not him. He's a pretty solid guy. For a feller named T-Bone who train hopped off the tracks just yonder over, and you go to thinking he probably don't deserve all that shit his kid said to him, because he seems like a nice enough guy, because you're cracking cold ones out of a cooler, listening to a train whiz by every hour on the hour where breezes don't exist except for once a year. When you finally decide to tear yourself from that shitty green door and case in the room where this phone exists and get some air on your skin because it's a damn week and past since you were somewhere halfway awake in Dallas with that deed of paper bare knuckled between your fingers and that steering wheel with them words sawing nail beds into your damn meat paw skin with your back order of cast iron sear blackening where Connie wrote his name. Your daddy. Find him. Ring, ring. Then there goes that damn phone again, biting clumps of your gut and spitting them back at you, horning out like some goddamn bugle of deserve as in, buddy, you best believe what's coming got a prerequisite. But all you can think about is that fluff of corn exploding on your windshield and them spirals of tinctured yellow spinning arcs and sparks like whittled gold, which had ramajammed your foot down metal to the pedal jarring up in wheels of that rumbled muscle car dead in its tracks on a two-lane highway in the middle of fucking nowhere. And you never really did like the middle of fucking nowhere because it's where you're from. And there were always that stink tagging along like a damn blanket suffocating tight. And it weren't the tight nurses taught in hospitals. And all of it do this episode, this random splitting of a cornfield by a punching fat middle-aged clown with paint left over from a kid's birthday plastered on his face were because you's hunting your dad. And there were an all over notion of not right tied up on both those ends. Like, weren't nothing warranting a clown get up this far out in the boonies that weren't dipped and dripped and seedy and wrong, which were of right accord like the card carrying sentimentality you had towards that particular family member in search of. And the sure fired, sealed, and dealed agreement of both them quandaries were flapping jacks in the form of that big fat zero that clown mouth were making. And suppose. It were sort of natural causations to why your foot would go to knee-jerk reaction, a burn, baby, burn, and stomp that gas pedal full metal jacket down, plow driving Ronald McDonald there to clip dent the shit on your bumper, and you double-dutch shoving a body in your trunk. And all this sermon to the mouth, because in the foreground of now, where that same monster's part, there's a faded yellow paper flapping under your windshield in the motherfucking breeze. That ought to bring us about fair and square. Let's get to that convo carrying out, shall we? In true slip and slide fashion and form a wide variance the preferred measure of attack regarding these sorts of things however nick standing with his feet spread further than his shoulders atop that motel roof worked so much rooted in tactical attunement and finesse as much as it were the desired absconsion of that beam pole visage that carried a 150 pound frame on a taller than should even when sopping wet but you had to give props for the try Thought I was going to have to wait all morning up here sweating like a pig for you to read that note. Hate I struck you slow, Mick. A slight slurry and a slush detectable in the lower right side and a grateful sigh that the Wesson God Almighty clutched in the left were beginning to assuage the worry of the bullet's initial cumbersome placement. Turned up to him, marking a spot with a squint. How long's it been? Mick swatted out. Two. But that little affair didn't really give us adequate time, so it's twelve for good measure. As if it were a fact he chewed on every day since the last sighting. That a clown I saw in your trunk? Sure enough is. He tied the balloon wrong. Nick always were a man to draw things out. Fashioned himself after a real-life gunslinger. A version of one of them tough guys born and bred on John Wayne and Clint caught himself up in it. Living out this fantasy as somebody reared in the wrong time in the wrong place. Wanted no ownership whatsoever to that holler back east. He growed into it well. Wore the thread, spoke the talk, carried the gun but he weren't never forced to ownership on it. 
just in a reminder down my spine's all. Nick went for a scratch on his nose, the Ruger following suit, pinning that grain against the rugged glare of his sudden tarnished skin. Might like a story. He weren't asking after the one about Ronald. He's asking after that blood that had sat and boiled and festered on him. Come on me in a cornfield. Just popped out. You don't say, the gun still arched by his brow. Just popped out on him. Had it be. My guess, he'd been sitting down on a promise of a couple of stacks of ten, been told and fed and clothed and things that ain't parts that ain't real, and he done shot me, this cowboy, Nick Fairchild, because somebody told him to and because he never could get past my knowing what he really were. I'd say it now if you surprised on a thing he'd comped with heavy breath. Fighting words, finally. Traveled all the way up to the line and now the tiptoe across to see who's made of what. That pain and knowing whittling over the dawn, speckling that scar he'd earned at six, all grease and shine from where Granny'd done a bad stitch after he'd been pushed down and beat over by a neat boy, so he said. From mine to his, but more to me. You ain't ever wanted to hear nothing I done tried to give. Started up now, just because you standing there and I sitting here don't seem to fit all that well with sense. It's a problem, Nick, it truly is. That glint forced mean, a stare I'd seen practice since powwows staged in the backyard. But there's clouds buried in them, barrels of haze covering up his eyes, fogging over that sight he's never granted. It were a dynamite, and the match were already fucking burning. Go time. He's a sickly boy, fragile little thing, cough about you all with that cough, that call, and that rattling, like you's begging for it, begging for the goddamn world to stop, like you something worth contributing. And I used to hope maybe you did, used to think, God damn, it might just be. Sun tipped round, edge and mixed tilt over and out, folds of black tacky on steel, cold gravel. That frail boy playing in the dirt of his mind, his life ahead of him, that thing that'd make him whole, hidden in a suit somewheres, he's yet to step in. Never quite found the fit, did you? I'd made my peace on it long ago. Charted my mark, slug kicked out, fire burned through, bang clanged overhead. Mick Fairchild were my brother, and I done killed him dead. But the kicker, the one to boot. The thing that'd make you madder than hell were that not even an hour ago, in between him reruns of Nanny's family on that two-station TV, though, you'd a mind on you to go and have a talk with that lady in the front about that spell of false advertising as there were distinct, and as you recall, solitary reason for why you pulled into this here oasis, and that were the goddamn promise of HBO for free. And yet when that clicker there to a 1986 box with two bunny ears sticking out where hell or high water intent on fucking mockery seemed to illuminate and shards onto the wide sprawl of every sort of potato chip that shitty vending machine held, because that's more likely than not to be the case, ain't it? Like, what else are you supposed to do at three in the morning when you put a fair hurting on a bottle of whiskey and your stomach starts to asshole cat calling you from the deep about how if you's a good and true Christian... You would have had the decency to at least sop down some bologna on white bread to your innards and go to work on a bottle. But seeing as how we're clearly in the stage of life where we can't have nice things, and you hear T-Bone there through the wall, lend a holler to that same office, airing a grievance about noise and compliance. And now, if somebody don't shoot him there, raccoons off the roof while he's in the middle of an afternoon siesta, which is exactly what a cooler fool of frosties will do to a feller, though I believe he were in the business of that grand tradition of whiskey sipping till it come proper drinking time, hence the predicament of the aforementioned chips, meaning Mick there set up camp for quite some time and of course the real tears for fears here were that shot he'd done give were nine to one odds of land from the particular velocity of wind and altogether shit shot he'd always been but he got me good clean slug type that goes in swift and sharp and finds itself feeling real nice and snug right up next to your guts right at that spot that'll ensure that slow steady bleed where no amount of tinkering or pulling or rooting gonna find that tipper that in that's what he done give me 
a surefire shot of dying in a parking lot with no goddamn dignity to be found in a hell of a short distance between the length of time we'd spent mad and confused about each other, that rusty motherfucker. I always imagined he'd find me in some fashion like this and some sorry for nothing shit stain of a town, but if I had my choosing, I'd surely want it to occur in some place other than anywhere in fucking Texas just thinking about it. It's enough to make me give a lean out to the defying that inevitable and hightailing my ass the five or six hours it'd take to cross a line just so I didn't have to die in this godforsaken place. Can't trust a man to come from something so flat. Can't trust his intentions, his yearnings, none of it. And a goddamn thing ever come from a drive through Texas that were worth the damn that this being the culmination on the land's hammer harder. And by God, if any of that doing involved anything less than hauling the dead body of my brother that of a course fell off that roof and pinned my foot, leaving us both stagnant and still and driving his ass all the way back to where it were that had bred and sealed two boys' fates in a situation like we got ourselves here than I would have. Just ain't gonna happen. So as it appear, unfortunate for me, that the crawling sprawl of a train rolling in on the east side of this spit of town, consisting all of one hotel and a gas station, and my brother's dead stare stamping my face and a burn mark on them green peepers, my last cradling. I had to die here with the sound of grind charging filters through breeze, that carrying a buzz playing by that blue bouffant woman my brother's Ruger took pity on with the clear mark, that channeling dumping over the left drip of exhaust and silver streak of dirty granite come out mufflers of hard travel times till finally the chug of wheels burning over track finds its resting in the perk of my ears and settles with the dust of that train's first roll through hazard. That'll do it. Oh my god. <laughs> That's so good. I think also I totally get it now because I've never like heard you read before. Like Nathan has mm-hmm. I get the punk thing where like yeah. you have to hear it. Yeah. It's it's very kind of like train spotty. Yeah. 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 I'll yeah, take but, that. Thank oh my you. god, so good. Yeah. I, I, will also, I will also say this. One, you had me dying like absolutely dying of laughter um but then two is the line can't trust the man who comes from anything this flat can't trust any of his intentions i'm just kind of like being from indiana i feel a little bit called out but i understand where you're coming from don't trust him don't trust him oh shut up you're from illinois (laughs) i didn't say trust me either (laughs) absolutely oh my goodness Absolutely wonderful. Oh my lord. Oh, I cannot wait. Oh, so good. I cannot okay. wait until this I cannot wait until this book comes out. Absolutely thank cannot you. wait until this book comes out. Yeah, uh, it's super fun. It's super yeah, it's it was it was a lot of fun to write. And it happens. I don't know if we're gonna get into the particulars or if we're like cutting cut to run. Oh, we are. Um, we are. Oh yeah, we oh, will. Okay. We will. Like we've we've got like some prepared questions, but then I'm I probably am gonna have like some additional questions for you. Um, all about it. Yeah. Oh no, I'm I'm like absolutely fascinated. First one, um, because this kind of like um goes into like the summary that you sent us for the, mm-hmm. for the whole book um yes. the story of grit black blood seems to take place over a very long uh time period from about the 1930s to the 1990s yeah how did you form this story kind of in your mind did you start in the 30s and work forward or the 90s and work back and also this cast of characters is almost biblical in its complexity yeah. and it's like yeah. so how did you so like you mentioned that you're a character-driven writer um mm-hmm. how did you kind of craft all these folks did they just kind of appear out of whole cloth um or did they like come about after like a lot of careful thought and then how did you end up connecting them all um, a, lot of, a lot of questions but very yeah, like no. very straightforward question right there <laughs> <laughs> so the first character that came to me was hound bonahue and hound bonahue came to me because 
I was listening to my uncle. Um, uh, I needed to auto audio record the stories of my family because the patriarchs and the matriarchs were passing on and is oral tradition. So my uncle was telling me the story about um, a family member who was so poor um, up in Eastern Kentucky, who, when they grew up, he, he'd walk around in frocks, dresses, because they couldn't afford, all he had were girls before him, so they couldn't afford the clothes. So I imagined this dude uh, walking around in frocks, but he's just like the worst, like the most deliciously worst. So like the first of his chapters, when I was me, had a, a grasshopper, I was walking around in frocks. And I just, his voice, I was just like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And so that happened. And then Ronnie came to me and Mick came to me because it's always good to have a foundational murder. Like it's what starts everything off. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, Cain and Abel all the time. Let's talk about some brothers that got that mimetic crisis and just want to beat the shit out of each other, but never get conflict resolution because, you know, they never can voice their feelings or whatnot. And so then I started thinking about um, the people who come from this particular area. And so uh coal wars so um 1930s you had bloody harlan before that you had the ludlow massacre in virginia before that you uh six years after that you had the Ma battle of mate one um so super uh aggressive um forces with individuals and coal companies and lots of times the national guard would be called in and they were kind of you know under the boot and the grind of the company man to a certain degree and then you had this confluence of how um hazard in particular where the these brothers are from is not only one of the truly one of the most uh uh dangerous cities in all of uh kentucky but also registered on the national uh, dangerous cities and it's where uh, my family lives and so I was like well I know this rather intimately let's start talking about this and so um the brothers came by well if these brothers exist then what beget them and what beget them was this violence uh and this well in the 60s there's a unification of of union men against the coal company but what would have then spurned that well then there's immense violence in the 30s and so that's kind of how it permeated throughout. And I, I based a lot of the battles on, on historical battles and um, these individuals on other family members uh, from, yes, stories or individuals like one of my favorite stories is there's this, there's this you know, this hard, hardened who's named Liver Eaton Johnson and Liver Eaton Johnson. So, oh, okay, we'll go two seconds. So you have to think for a second. <laughs> you have to think for a second that Kentucky was founded. It was part of the Virginia Territory. So Kentucky, for all intents and purposes, once the expansion happened there, it was the representation of the expansion West. So it was the, it was the first Western um, move from the colonies. Uh, so in this area, you have Shawnee, Cherokee, you have other first peoples. You have immense topography that prevents people from migrating inward because you have all of these mountains and um, uh, forests and you have what happened in Virginia in 1609. You had uh, essentially just the replica, replica, uh, replication of aristocracy from Europe. So you had all these lords and ladies on drip with diamonds or whatnot. So they would push like the individuals who were not of a particular standing to go west and and, and go into these other areas and for these individuals who are trying to craft something new. And uh, I think it's 16, 
like 1670s or something, you had the Baker Rebellion and all of these spurts of violence started happening because that's what happens when you introduce people from different walks of life. Um, that's a blanket statement, but it is. Uh, it's more insular, but we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. We'll make that, <laughs> we'll dig with that for a second. Um, so then you have Daniel Boone who comes over from the Cumberland Gap in 1760. And uh you have in Hazard, particularly in southeastern Kentucky, you had a lumber industry that was, we're, we're jumping about uh, 150 years now, 200, yeah, 150 years. Um, you have a lumber industry and then you have industrialization that happens and you have trains that are switching from lumber fueled trains to coal fueled trains. And that then gives rise to coal companies. Um, and within these coal companies, the coal company controlled everything. So not only did they have like in Ludlow in Denver where it was tent city. So the company owned everything. They owned your house. They gave you company scripts. So company money that could only be spent at the company store. Um, so if you had any sort of, and they did not want unionization. So if you had any sort of individual that bucked that system, there were very, uh, horrible ways in which they would punish you uh, uh, from, from stripping your ability to shop at the store, which provided for your family uh, by saying that your money's not good there to putting you in the wrong coal room so that because coal was based upon weight. And so if you weren't making your wages, you weren't paid that way to all and out um, uh, extradition from the coal tent. So that means that they took everything from you and you had to go out into the wilderness. So it's just a, it was just a confluence of like really interesting things. And not to mention that coal companies also then introduced Irish, Scottish, uh, uh, people from Mexico, people from Spain, people from Italy and France, all into this one little hamlet in the mountains that had never had that sort of co-mingling uh, before. And uh, the relationships that got founded from that. And then all of this is, of course, is wrapped up with um, this, this kind of uh, violent upheaval. I think I answered your question. You did. Yeah, no, that's great. Okay, that's fantastic. Yeah. What's really funny It'll... is that we both took AP US history, and I think I just learned more from you than I did in that in that entire year. <laughs> I'm, so for that's actually so one that's actually fascinating because like i'm one of my weird like little like i love learning about different aspects of american history but i also love about like i also love learning about conflicts between private industry and and like the work and like the working class or like those mm -hmm. who have nothing to sell but their labor the proletariat if we want to go like with marxist terminology um right but the aspect that you're kind of talking about is the entire formation of everything that leads to your story is really tied up in these very, very complex, um, complex and yet somewhat simple. And that it's like a lot of complex threads being brought together, but a very simple fact of the company is screwing people over left and right while making money hand over fist. And it's all being brought up into this story. So, I guess kind of to give the listeners a little bit of a preview is like how much of that really complex history, how much does that get brought up in like the life stories of these characters in something where they have a very, a much shorter view of things where they're only seeing what's directly happening around them, or are they able to kind of see to a degree the, the bigger picture of what's going on beyond uh, hazard? Uh, 
if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, the, the, it's told in three timelines, the 30s, the 60s, and the 90s, and it happens, uh, it, it, it's not linear, but, but it's, it's switching constantly. So you're getting purviews of um, individuals in their place and time. Um, so the 60s tends to, as with uh, historical accuracy, tends to be more representative of the fight against the coal company um, because unionization exists there. The 30s is, so there's an infamous battle that happened called Bloody Harlan, which lasted for nine years. I want you to really like visualize nine years of guerrilla warfare in a town that is not big. And it had, um, there's a documentary called Bloody Harlan and Harlan is actually an hour and 20 minutes away from Hazard. Um, so National Guard got brought in uh, multiple times and you have just this uh, like cars getting blown up with Molotov cocktails and people getting shot. Um, like the uh, mate one in, um, in Virginia. It's fascinating because what happened is the, essentially like Pinkerton's uh, a coal company variation of Pinkerton showed up to kick all of these people out of a coal camp city. And they did it a couple of times and then they went to go have dinner. And then the sheriff showed up and the sheriff um, is Sid Hatfield also of the Hatfields and McCoys from Pike County, Kentucky, but he's living in Virginia and he goes and he's like, I got to arrest for your warrant. Like I'm going to, and meanwhile, he's saying this and the Pinkerton's like, well, I have a rest for your warrant. <laughs> and then all of this is just taking up time because, uh, all of the bad ends from the coal company are lining tombstone style, the roofs and whatnot, and they just start shooting. So then Hatfield, like, um, you know, all these, the brothers die, some bro people die and um, they get taken to court and Hatfield gets um, acquitted of his contributions to this. And then what happens though, within the legal justice system at that time, at that place, he should have been acquitted. He then gets shot by the Pinkerton's brother who um, was killed on the court steps, uh, court steps, right as he's walking out. So it's more uh, that sectarian violence is representative in its, its existing timeline. So in the 30s and the 60s and in the 90s, what you have is this, this loss of maneuverability for these essentially these men who were meant to be warriors and they have no one to warrior with. And so they warrior with themselves and then they turn into um, elements, criminal elements in order to get by because they're not meant to operate in this story. They're not meant to operate within the system. And okay. so, but their lacking operation is due directly to the causation of some decisions that were made in the thirties. So it's a time and a place and it's, but it's yes. Yes, we will show you. I will show you, show the people how it all relates. Hopefully, or I won't. I don't know. Excellent, excellent. No, I, no, it's like, I have complete faith. I just like it's like this is. I, I love I love these kinds of discussions because it, like oh, the, the term sectarian violence is so interesting to me because like when I when I hear that I think Iraq, I think Syria, I think Northern Ireland, I do not think Kentucky. Or Virginia. Well, yeah. Well, we've done a that's, lot to like keep that quiet too. Yes. Yes, that's also well, very you, true. Well, you have to think about like if you're if you're looking at it from an anthropological standpoint, the individuals that came to Kentucky, Scotch, Irish, German, who migrated in, were from large in part hurting 
cultures, herding cultures. So think about that for a second. If you're a herding culture, then you have a flock and your flock is something that you are supposed to protect. And anything that comes near your flock, your flock, the assumption is, is that they're going to take your things and they're going to kill it. And so that breeds a very particular type of individual. Prime example, true story, literally. Uh, lots of family, um, but uh, who there, uh, there was a particular family member who lived in, um, we got a, bu a bunch of land because um, my people used to have, um, we used to own Carter Caves, which is this big uh, Carter Cave complex. And there's like, we have a hauler. Uh, named Dubs. We've existed for a long time in this area. And um, to this day, if this individual was alive, you would have to, as my uncle say, yarl the door. And that means that before you stand, you were to step foot on that property, you would have to identify yourself or you would be shot. And that is an extension. Like for, I was at, so here's the funny thing. I was in a, I was in Vegas. I was doing this thing for work or whatnot. I'm in this thing. It's rodeos there. So it's the biggest, um, you know, it's cattle, cattle men and cattle women. And I'm standing there and I'm, you know, we're talking about bourbon and somebody comes in an old timer with a bug, we're at a, you know, a buggy or whatnot. And uh, he goes, oh, bourbon, I know about that. And I'll go, oh, you want to talk about it, bro? And he goes, ah, yeah, I don't need to talk about it. I'm from Louisville. And I was like, oh, well, you know, all my people come from Hazard. And he goes, they'll shoot you up there. And I go, they might could. And he goes, there's no might about it. And he starts walking. <laughs> And so it's just like, but that is a direct reflection of that kind of cultural existence. It's, it's very fascinating. I'm so fascinated why people do what they do. That is amazing. And like, <laughs> not like a good way, like a, I want to study this way. Like that's, mm -hmm. yeah, that's insane. Um, but yeah, I think it also goes to show just how much research you've done into into this story so talk to us a little bit about that was it more um from like an anthropological side how much of it was taken from like the oral histories um how did you kind of divvy up that work so well my grandfather was uh a, the union president of the coal company in hazard kentucky and so i would just listen to uh stories from my family and um like I said, I spent some time with my uncle and it, it was very important for me to get a recording of all of these, all of these histories, um, because it was going to go. Um, and, uh, I just started thinking like <laughs> about there, about how I wanted to immerse myself within this, to understand my family more and to understand um, where you come from. Uh, and so then I started, I picked up this book for kill, which Nate, you may like a lot or um, killing for coal, which is an examination of all of these historical things about like um, how uh, strikes for all of these years and, and looking at that. And so I researched that. And then uh, there's this, there's this fellow, I, I, there's a fellow named Lever, Liver Eaton Johnson. Have I told you all about him yet? Liver, you he, like, touched on mentioned it. him, but not, yeah. not a full story. So like this historic, this mountain man, this fr I'm fascinated by frontiersmen. These just, uh, oh gosh, he's just hardens, you know? Uh, as, as my uncle called them, baddies, oh, they're bad. And, you know, they come in there. And uh, so Liver Eaton Johnson was a frontiersman who got captured by um, uh, some individuals. And they decided to uh, 
uh, cut him up real good. And they took an ear and a couple of things. And he got out of that. But he got out of that by cutting off his leg and eating his leg and tracking them through the wilderness. And he came back and he just like it ended up being this like 10 year violence in which he just had to kill everybody. And then um, then he got it's just fascinating. So honestly, just like I start going down this rabbit hole and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, and the next thing you know, I've spent five hours. And, you know, a Google K-hole. And I know, like, all of these facts about Liverine Johnson. I could tell them to you today. And I was like, well, I got to have a character like him, by God. I mean, what am I doing? If I'm not writing about that. That sounds like a movie plot. Like, that sounds like a Kentucky version of John Wick. Is like, they cut me up. So I had to eat my leg. I killed them all. Yeah, that, that's where John Wick came from. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure right. the writer heard that story. Just like I'm gonna put him in New York. Just I'm like gonna I'm gonna change gun the arsenal. leg to a dog, and it'll be fine. Fine. <laughs> I would. I would give him four movies. You know. Yeah. So, no, I like the 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 research you've done for this is absolutely spectacular. So thank you, thank you so much. Like we we are all in your gratitude. We are all like in your debt for this. So this is uh, my, I don't know, Nathan, you might have another question. My last question to you, which is yeah. very important. Yes. Are you doing the audiobook? I don't know. Um, okay. I, w- I would like to. Uh, I don't know if uh, that'll be part of uh, the discourse with Ron. I know that Ron is looking into his service, but I mean, I definitely think if I, if I can have some sway in it, um, he's heard me read before. He's, he's, he's been very nice. He's been very nice to say so. Uh, I, I hope so. But if not, I'll just have to travel to where y'all are at. We'll do a noir at the bar. We'll, we'll bust a couple of beers out and pour some whiskey and we'll just get around a bonfire and read. Come to New York, please. Please yeah. come to New York and read I'll, this yeah. story. I'll, 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 tra- I'll travel up to New York for that. Or you can come out You can come out to Virginia. I don't have a place to put up a bonfire, but I can, I can find one. Sure. Yeah, I mean, New York City's not known for its bonfires either, but I've, you know. Upstate. We can go to Upstate. We'll take a Yeah, Upstate. For sure. I love Upstate New York, but yeah. Um, but no, I, I mean, like, I don't, like, the questions I have, um, the last one that was, like, really kind of prepared, um, in one second, uh, so it's, like, the two big things, I've like, we've kind of noticed about your stories, and this is partially informed by the Noir at the Bar performance, is that they have moments of pure mayhem, absolute pure mayhem, and the way that they're written drives home uh, that they're being told by somebody um like for example the way that black betty is narrated as well as the summary you sent us for grit um almost immediately gives the reader a picture of the narrator and since you mentioned that you come from a family of oral storytellers um how did you kind of figure out how to keep that feeling of oral storytelling in a written word like on the on the page where it can't like jump out at you or have its own intonation I, I don't know that I can answer that. I just like started writing stuff. So I don't, I don't know that I actively thought about that at all. Um, I wish I had a better answer. Um, I think that's just how that's where the pen led me. Like, I was just like, okay, get it down, get it down. Um, like the first, uh, the opening of black Betty is she's kind of having this conversation with herself and it's this kind of horrific duality of the things that haunt her and then noticing that the things that haunt her are her like and so no but yeah like it it totally works though because it makes it feel so real 
Like I'm instantly invo- invested in these characters because that oh, sounds yeah. like a person that sounds like how they talk. That sounds like how they think. Like I'm instantly like, okay. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here for this. Yeah. Oh, good. How, how far have you gotten to, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm just like curious on your take on it. Like how, where, where are you about there yet? I'm about at like uh, chapter like four or five. Like I'm starting to kind of get a sense. Like I'm, I've just okay. met the council and I'm starting to kind uh-huh. of get a sense of where she's going from here. Um, so like I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit early on, but like the style has already made an impact on me. Um, I definitely get like the dystopian feel. Like I got that like right off the bat. Also the fact that you have like wild tobacco plants, just like growing along the road, absolutely wonderful touch. It means your oh, characters thanks. can smoke forever. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, but yeah, like so much about that, like really, really kind of hits me in, um, just the way that it was done. It's because, uh, I, I love like oral storytelling. I used to, I actually used to go to some festivals to listen to stories told kind of like that. Cool. Um, cool. Never quite in like the same dialogue that you have, but like, I like your, I like your version of doing it better. Um, but then it's also that, so because this is, because this is like very like orally based. And I know you said that you, I know you said that like, this is just kind of like the way it came out of your pen, but do you find yourself like, narrating these things like to yourself right like before you write them yeah okay oh yeah no like if i don't if i don't put it down then the line will haunt me it's kind of like like someone knocking on the glass like hey sister if you don't pay attention this is going to be in your head all day like just put it down like put it down yeah um but i will say that i i do find like to an earlier thing that I find that the the words do, the characters do lead me to a very particular starting point, usually always. And that is like very micro and then pulls out, like almost like a lens, like it drops you into something and then pulls out. And um, it's usually, usually in tune with their misunderstanding of what sort of shitstorm that they're in. And as it, as as it like envelops out, I think that gives context to the, to the reader as well to invite them like, oh, like, oh, like. So I asked you the reason because I just wanted to know if you had met Top Hat yet. So I I, I have not, but I'm really really intrigued. Um, but also like the way you mentioned micro and then macro, is it is that like almost. So is it is it the characters that are like they're having like this grander awareness as they like they go micro to macro? So it's like them almost like having like a, a psychological realization of like how bad the situation is, or is it more of just that the reader like the reader is getting that awareness apart from them? I think the reader is getting the awareness apart from them. I think okay. that they're blind for the majority of the time um, until they're not blind until they're forced to see which is always uncomfortable for anyone entirely yeah but like some of my favorite books have been written like that like there's so many good like they're just they're made to be heard like they're written Mm -hmm. as though you're hearing it so did you ever read chuck palinuk survivor i have not had the pleasure but i have i have a list here that i'm writing down i highly recommend listening to that as an audiobook because it is a recording of the main character speaking into the black box of a crashing plane Oh, okay. so it's him yeah. narrating the story. And then the other one is, and I've mentioned this on this podcast a million times and I will not Sadie. stop is Sadie. Yeah, he knew it. <laughs> it's written to be a podcast. So you're listening to the podcast narrator 
investigating what happened and then you also get the audio of the girl that he's investigating Mm -hmm. you have those two stories side by side but it's definitely like there are just some books that you want to hear them or some Mm -hmm. books that like you read them and you can't hear it in your mind and that's what I get from your writing and your short stories and especially what you just did like is that very clear voice and I I love it I love it so much well thank you that's very nice yeah. Oh my gosh. Like every, every, like Sadie is one of Sadie is one of those books. Like she forced me to listen to it. I did. Um, because she was like, this broke my heart. I cannot go through this alone. You will go through this with me. Um, so if you, so if you get emotional, when you read, I'd highly recommend having a box of tissues next to you as you listen to Sadie oh, and never okay. listen to it in a public place. <laughs> I, I, okay. I only listen, I only listened to it through lockdown. Cause I knew that if I was anywhere with people around, I would start crying and I couldn't do that. I, I can't do wow. that in Virginia. I cannot do that in DC. Like yeah. I would get, I would get you can do off it anywhere. Jail. You can do it anywhere. I am a hundred percent. The person where like, if I see something or in, like ingest a piece of media that makes me sad, I immediately share it with at least five other people to be like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing this alone. So like, did you ever watch Futurama? No, but I've okay. heard wonderful things. Never mind. Um, oh, uh, no. <laughs> I meant. <laughs> <laughs> I can't line someone up like that. That is no, not deliver. I was gonna. I was gonna give another example. Okay, there's a very, very, very sad Futurama scene, and like anyone who knows the show, it's like 15 seconds, right? Uh-huh. It's like saying "Red Wedding" at Game of Thrones, right? Like you just yeah, yeah, know, sure. right? Oh, I know so what you're if, talking about. Yeah, I know what you're so talking I, like, about. Had this episode come up at the last 15 seconds, I put on my Instagram story, and immediately had five people being like, "How dare you?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> wasn't doing it alone <laughs> wasn't doing this alone uh, social media you... no go on no no no. it's it's good to have a uh, companionship you need sometimes like bearing witness to things is is hard you want companionship so kudos to you yeah like, <laughs> I, listen, like it. I can't like have anyone know that my heart is ice so i need everyone else to melt just a little bit more than me <laughs> feel free to send me all the stuff I'll, I'll walk through sorrow with you Go for it. I will. I will absolutely link you to all yeah, these things. Please do. Social media is wonderful because it gets you to share certain moments of joy, but then it also enables you to share your sorrow with people who sometimes did not ask for it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the price of our friendship. I am forced to feel things I don't want to feel. Yeah, but then you send me dad jokes and like it all evens out. Trades trade yeah he literally sent me the worst pun today <laughs> 15 second lead up to a pun and i was like i hate if this was like right before we got on the call with you and i was just like i hate you he <laughs> sent me in like like all caps yeah all caps one word messages why do you torture me and i was like because, because i can like i mean you know what and I remember like some like you were saying earlier that anyone who does this is a little bit of a masochist. A sadist is just a masochist who lives by the golden rule. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I heard that back uh, in, I heard that back in high school and it stuck with Kirsten died. Um this is her ghost saying <laughs> Kirsten died of Nate's bad joke itis. <laughs> The thing is, I wasn't thinking that it was even a bad joke. That's, that's kind of true. <laughs> the worst jokes are. The worst jokes are always true. It's like, yeah. I'm sorry. Kirk with the ear 
saying goodbye it to was the Picard. final frontier. It was Picard. Okay, so so Ashley, just just so you're just so you're in on yeah. this. Bring apparently, yeah. apparently Patrick Stewart, who played Picard in uh, Star Trek: A New Generation, uh-huh. when he was much much younger, he apparently had a condition where he would grow an ear right here between his eyebrows, no. right here on his forehead. He would grow no. it and. It, they would remove it and it would just keep coming back. It would just keep coming back. Shut keep coming up. Back. Yes. <laughs> and then event and then eventually a doctor somewhere in England found out that he was having this condition and he approached his family and said, I can actually remove that. And then with a special skin graphing technique, I can actually remove it and there will be very minimal scarring. So barely anyone will ever notice that it was there. And Patrick Stewart was about nine when this was happening. So like, you know, he's he's kind of young. But he's just like, finally, I'll be without I'll be without like this front ear. And then they're getting ready. They're going to go to the procedure. And just before they go into the operating room, just before Patrick Stewart goes under anesthetic, he gets up from the hospital bed. He goes in front of the mirror and he says goodbye to his final front ear. No. I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> it's awful. I was trying to warn you. It was like, this isn't real. This is is that a true story? Did he really? Oh, it's not. It's just a really oh. bad setup for a pun. It's just a very elaborate setup to a dad joke. <laughs> I was like, get out. I was like trying to be like, no, no, it's not real. It's not real. <laughs> no, I, I will also say this, like, this has been like one of the most philosophically inclined episodes. I think we've we've recorded. We've mentioned yeah. Rene Girard. We've mentioned Carl Jung. We've mentioned like anthropological forms of looking at things like this is actually like this was an incredibly philosophically inclined episode and thank you very much for doing that. thank you very much oh for facilitating that no thank, thank I, you so much thank you so much it's such a pleasure to like put a face with a name and and to meet y'all and to uh, thank you for your hospitality and allowing me to speak with y'all today I've, I've really enjoyed it and hopefully it'll make for a nice little good good listen for folks oh Hundred percent, it will. Um, and please send us uh, a pre a pre save pre buy pre I don't know pre pre order yeah. link pre order that word I don't know I spent yeah. too much time on Spotify lately. Um, that thing when he when he have it because I want this I want to read the rest of it. Oh, thank you. Yes, I will. We're um hopefully going to be getting that out soon. So, and we'll link Very to your exciting. Twitter and your author author website in our please episode do. show notes as well. Okay, perfect. Thank you. It was okay. such a pleasure. If y'all are ever uh on the west coast linda holler please absolutely definitely yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll hit you up on twitter in the meantime everyone thank you for listening please um rate us on apple Podcasts. rate us on spotify like comment subscribe uh on your podcast uh service of choice share us with all of your friends um please check out ashley Irwin's work um the ballad of black betty or the um or sort the Ballad of Black... What is the title of your book? Remind me again. I'm sorry. I'm not so terrible with this. <laughs> a Ballad Concerning Black Betty or the Retelling of a Man Killer and Her Machete. But the best way to go is just go to Twitter, Little Blonde Ninja. Um, uh, and uh, there's a there's a link to the website or Ashley, hashtag Irwin.com. And Great Dash. Black Blood comes out in November. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely perfect. In the meantime, everyone, thank you again, as always, for listening. And please always remember to look beneath the surface. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys.